Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here at Hope City Church, and I just want to echo what Rob and Melissa said, that it's a big deal that you're here to us today for lots of different reasons, but thanks for coming, whether this is your first time or 50th time or 150th time or whatever. We're just glad that you're here. We're better together, and so uh, we, we love that you're here. Um, we're going to be jumping into or continuing our series meant for more today. We're going to do that in a second, but before we did that, I just felt like we needed to take maybe three minutes and just kind of address uh, what happened yesterday. You know, I'm not, if you've been around here long at all, you know I'm not one to like uh, try to mix a lot of cultural, political, societal things just because I think sometimes preachers take themselves way too seriously and feel like they've got to like, you know, make a statement on everything. And so that's never my heart or my intention. But I also know that um, there are times when something that you see or something that happens in culture is so either worrisome or so disgusting that uh, it's important for the church to, to be clear. And, uh, and so as we were, Andrew and I and the kids were out for most of the day yesterday, and, and we weren't uh, around the news or media, but we were kind of just checking in things, and probably a lot like yourself, just seeing different images and, and watching different things, and and I don't know what your emotions were like. I know what my emotions were like. I'm guessing they were a lot like your emotions. It was just this mixture of, uh, of sadness and disgust and fear and, uh, and anger. And I'm a middle-class, middle-aged white man. So I can't imagine what some of you in the room were feeling, uh, and depending on your background or, or whatever that is. So, um, but as I was watching that, I had, I had several thoughts come to my mind just as Christians. Like, what, what is it, what should a response be of somebody who, who claims to love Jesus, follow Jesus, when they see this happening and they're confronted with it? Like, what, what is that? And so this is just kind of very unorganized thoughts, but these were the thoughts that were coming into my head. The first thing I thought of is where Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, he didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers because peacekeepers keep peace where there's already peace. He said, please, makers, which means you make peace in the middle of a situation that has no peace. And that's incredibly hard, um, and, and it takes a lot of courage. And, and, and we live in this outrage culture, this outrage society, right? That everything is the worst it's ever been, and it's the most disgusting it's ever been, and whatever president is president is the worst we've ever had, or the best we've ever had, or schools are this, or, you know, whatever it is. Like, we live in an outraged society where everybody has a take, and everybody has an opinion, and it's just like outrage all the time. And I think there is an opportunity for those of us who follow Jesus to be able to step into the middle of all of this outrage and just have peace that passes understanding. And uh, that was the first thought. The second thought that came to my mind was where Nehemiah, uh, and we preached on this here, where Nehemiah finds out about the ruins of his hometown. And he doesn't say it's anybody else's fault. What he says is he says, yes, even my family and me have sinned. And that's probably what I wanted to say it, that I took away uh, from everything that I saw yesterday. And I wrote this down because I wanted to say it right but as I was scrolling through Facebook, which is probably not the right thing to do in the middle of something like that because, you know, everybody has something to say. But as I was scrolling through Facebook last night, late last night, the one thing that I noticed is that everyone was looking for somebody to blame, right? 
So, so it was either, you know, President Trump's fault because he enabled it, or it was the Christian's fault who supported President Trump, or it was Barack Obama's fault because he backed Black Lives Matter, or it was the church's fault because they've remained silent, or it was, you know, the South's fault, or what, what, I mean, everybody's looking for somebody, looking for somebody to blame. And, um, you know, there, there, there's no one finger to point at like one person. Sin is to blame. When things happen in our world that is awful and disgusting, like sin, sin is to blame. And the compound interest of sin screws people up so bad that there comes a point when you look at what someone is doing and you wonder, how could someone do that? That's what sin does. And it doesn't just happen to somebody else. That's what sin does to us. That if you allow sin to get into your heart, it screws you up, and then sin screws you and your kids up, and then sin screws your kids' kids up, and then the next thing you know, generationally, sin has taken people to such a place that you watch something that you're doing, they're doing, and you wonder, how could someone do that? They could do it because of the compound interest of sin. And it's the same way that it works in your life, that if you allow sin in your heart for a long enough time, you will find yourself doing things and other people will look at you and wonder, how could they do that? So as I was watching these images of everything that was happening, and you probably like me are thinking like, how could someone be there saying that, doing that? It's the compound interest of sin. Specifically in this instance, it's the compound interest of the sin of racism. This is what I wrote down. Sin ruins people's kids. Sins ruins people's kids' kids, generations, multiple generations. And I can't change the world, and you can't change the world, but you can change your home. And that was the biggest takeaway for me yesterday, is that I cannot, I'm not going to convince somebody on Facebook or somebody at my job of changing somebody's opinion. It's not going to happen. But I do have influence over my home, and I do have influence over my kids And so if what you saw outraged you, and I hope that it did, you have the ultimate opportunity to influence and to change the world, but you're not going to change it in this 20 years. You're going to change it in 40 years or 60 years or 80 years because you decide to lead your home. And here's what I know. If I lead my home well and you lead your home well, then we're going to change the church. And if we change the church, then we change communities. And if we change communities, then we change cities and cities, states, and states. You feel like everybody. So so if, if you feel like something needs to be done, do something about it, but don't yell so loud and then somehow miss uh, the opportunity to influence those that are around you. I, I was most cognizant of my own sin, my own biases, my own racist tendencies in my own life when I was watching the disgusting things that were happening yesterday. I hope you know this. That's one of the things I love about Louisville, Kentucky is I feel like for the most part, I grew up in the South. I grew up in the like heavy, heavy, heavy Bible belt. And one of the things that Andrew and I loved about Louisville when we showed up is that for the most part, based on what we see, it is not near as bad as the South that we grew up in as far as a lot of racist things, even though it obviously still is there. And so I hope you know this, but if you are black, Hispanic, uh, whatever, like whatever, uh, you know, demo you fall into, whatever uh, you are, whatever your skin color is or, or whatever, like we just want you to know that as far as Hope City Church goes, like we completely are against everything that we saw yesterday. 
and we think it's disgusting and, and despicable, and, and, and we are working on us. We don't claim to be perfect or better, but we just want you to know that, like, we want Hope City Church to be a place where everybody's welcome, uh, no matter where you come from, history, skin color, it doesn't matter, because uh, heaven is going to be uh, a really diverse place. And so we want to be heaven on earth. All right. So a lot of thoughts and I could say a lot more, but then I'll get in trouble because I'll get on soapboxes and I don't want to do that. Um, but if there is something happening in your heart and you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk with you about it. If you feel compelled to do something, do something. Um, but let's don't, let's don't yell really loudly to try to create change that we're never going to create that way. Let's influence those that we have influence over and let's be peacemakers and I think Jesus will bless that. Does that make sense? Okay, so that was like a really heavy way to start this message, but I felt like we needed to talk about it. So let's take a break. Okay, let's transition, all right? And uh, let's jump into the second week of this series, Meant for More, Meant for More. We are uh, doing this little three-week series where we're looking at three stories in the Gospels. This is the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three stories in the Gospels where Jesus comes across a little mean. It sounds weird to say, right? It sounds kind of odd to say like Jesus comes across mean because we said last week that most of us have this picture of Jesus. It's like Matthew McConaughey Jesus, right? It's like a little bit hippie, a little bit laid back, turning water into wine, you know, just kind of like, all right. Like, like that's how, kinda, how we view Jesus, a lot of us. But there were times when Jesus was, was aggressed with the... And, and had an intensity to him because he was frustrated with the lack of something, production, faith, results, whatever it is. And, and so Jesus is full of grace. He's patient, loving, kind, giving us chance after chance after chance. He is 100% that. But he's also full of truth, which means that he's constantly trying to close the gap between where we are and where we could be. He's constantly trying to close the gap between where we are and where we could be. And so if there are areas in our life that we are choosing not to deal with, choosing not to lean into, neglecting on purpose, there are these moments and times and stories in the scriptures where we read them and Jesus is like, we've got to deal with this. We've got to deal with it. I'm going to get up in your face a little bit. I'm going to be aggressive and have some intensity because you were meant for more. You were meant for more. You were not meant to just get saved, live hell on earth, and then go to heaven. That's not what you were meant for. You were meant for more. And so Jesus wants you to have life to the full. And so we're looking at these three stories and challenging ourselves, allowing the Bible to challenge us to not settle, but to live for more, to go for more, for, to be more. All right? And so last week we looked at story in Luke chapter six, or 13 uh, about a fig tree. And we said, you got to dig it. You got to dung it. You got to cut it. That was a fun little message to preach. You can find it on the podcast if you weren't able to be here. This week, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. If you want to find that in the Bible, uh, it'll be up on the screen. If not, Matthew chapter 25. Now, uh, I, I read, a, I read some, some research that was done at, the, at Harvard a few years back. It was a very basic uh, study, but here, here, was the, here was the research, okay? They went to students at Harvard and they asked this question. There are two jobs that you can choose from and all things are equal, like hours are equal and, and workload is equal and the people you work with, like the only thing that's different between job A and job B is job A, you make $50,000 a year. Job 
and everybody, you make $100,000 a year. This is not a trick question. Which job would you pick? And everybody in the room's like, duh, I would pick B. I get to make $100,000 a year, duh, I would choose job B. They said, okay, great, that's what we thought. 100% of the people chose job B, right? They said, okay, let's ask another question. All things are equal, except if you choose job A, you're gonna make $50,000 a year, and everyone in your life that you know will make $25,000 a year. So you're gonna have twice as much money as everybody else in your life. Or you can choose job B and make $100,000 a year, but everyone that you know in your life will make $200,000 a year. So you can choose job A and make 50, but have twice as much as everybody you know, or you could choose job B and make 100, but have half as much as everybody you know. What would you choose? Interesting question, right? And, and most of us, our initial reaction is like, I don't care, I would, choose I would choose job B, I would still take the 100. But if we really got down to the gut, like heart, nasty parts of our life, we could really honestly start to have a conversation about how much we compare ourselves to other people and how much we rank ourselves and view our importance based on other people. And I don't know if it would surprise you or not to know that the majority of people of the students at Harvard chose job A that they would rather make less money as long as they knew they were making more money than all of their family and friends. So that kind of leads us to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is a story about, uh, about three guys, three servants, maybe they were friends, we don't know, who were given a task. They were given a task to manage someone's money. Now this is a parable, which means it's a fictional story. Uh, Jesus is telling the story and there are some parts that we will recognize that are just crazy obvious what they represent. But this is a fictional story in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start with verse 14, read a little bit, and we'll stop occasionally to make some points. All right, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, here's what it says. A story of Jesus is talking. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. And he called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. Now, let me just stop and say, today is not about money. Today is not a message about money, but everything that we're going to talk about applies to money. It could also apply to love and joy and forgiveness and hope. Like it, it applies to every commodity, every asset in our lives. But Jesus is going to use money to drive the point home because it always drives the point home, okay? All right, so Jesus obviously is represented in this story by the man who has the money. We are the servants in the story. So as we continue to read, know that the guy who's in charge is God. And the guys who are being entrusted and are giving the money, that's you and me. Okay, let's keep reading, starting with verse 15. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last. Let's stop for one second. I've always found this interesting that in this story, one guy gets five, one guy gets two, and one guy gets one. And here's, if I'm just being honest about my life, here's what I've learned about me. It's never bothered me to be a one-bag guy until I look at people who have five. I don't know if you've ever felt that way about you, but like, I don't ever feel bad about my kids until I find out your kids like are awesome. <laughs> and then I'm like, Sadie, how did you not do better on that math uh, standardized test thing, right? How did you not score more goals? Why don't we live in a better neighborhood? My neighborhood never bothered me until I went to your neighborhood. And now I'm bothered by mine. 
You, you, understand, you understand what I'm saying? So as we read this story, everybody right off the bat like wants to be a five-bag guy. But we don't, we're not ever bothered by what we have until we notice what other people have. So he gives one guy five, he gives another guy two, and he gives another guy one. But here's the most important statement, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. And we're going to get to me not very a second, but this is a, this is a verse that we're probably not very comfortable with in, in the room because based on the implications of this statement, here's what Jesus is saying is that currently as it stands right now in this room, there are people who are five bag people. There are people who are two bag people and there are people who are one bag people. And if you're a one bag person, that's because currently where you are in life right now, God believes that you can only handle one bag. And if you have five, it's because God wanted you to have five because he believes you're capable of handling five. Now, if you're currently in a spot in life where you feel like you should have more, you wonder why you don't have more, that probably bothers you a little bit. That according to the literal words in this story, this guy who represents God assigned values based on ability. I don't want to sound like grouchy old man sitting on his front porch, but we don't do this a lot in society anymore. So then when we take society and we place it on the Bible, there is this conflict. Because when it comes to things like job performance or kids sports or uh, political views about economics, there is this part in all of us that wants things to be fair and wants things to be equal, but the kingdom of God doesn't work like that. But according to this story, some people are able to manage and perform with five, some two, and some one, right? And so as we read that, we're like, I don't know. Let's keep reading. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work. Everybody say went to work. He went to work. And earn two more. Verse 18. But the servant who received the one bag hid the master's money. Dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. Hid the master's money. Verse 19. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and he called them to give an account. Everybody say, give an account. It's worth noting before we read on that everyone in the room today at some point will give an account for your life. I'll give an account for my life. You'll give an account for your life. And you're going to give an account not based on how you ranked against everybody else. That's not the account that you give. You're going to give an account based on what you did with what you had. That's the account that you'll give. So you're not going to stand before God and God's going to say, did you do as much as Jason? And God's not going to say to me, Jason, did you do as much as Rob? Rob, Rob sold everything and went to Guatemala. How come you didn't do that? That's not what God's going to say. God's going to say, Jason, based on what I gave you, what did you do with it? That's the account that I'm going to give, and that's the account that you're going to give. So God's going to say to me, Jason, I didn't give you Daniel's kids. I gave you your kids. How did you parent your kids? I gave you Andrea. How did you, how was your marriage 
What investment did you make with Andrea? We're all going to give an account. But the account is going to be based on what we did with what we have. Let's keep going. So they're giving an account of how they use their money. Verse 20. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Verse 22, the servant who had received two bags of silver, you know where this is going, came forward and said, Master, you had two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. And the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling the small amount, and so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Verse 24, then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man. Let's just stop for a second. Has, the, has he seemed harsh up until this point? Has the man who, who was in charge, like, does he, just your opinion, does he seem like a harsh man? He doesn't to me. Now, maybe, maybe this guy knew something we didn't know, but based on what I've read, he doesn't seem like a harsh man, but this was the view that the guy with one bag had of him. And so he said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. Verse 25, I was afraid. I was afraid I would lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. A.W. Tozer says that the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. The most important thing about you is your view of God. And so there are two people here with five and two who go to work and who turn five into 10 and two into four. And we don't get to, we don't get to hear about what their view of the man was. But the guy who didn't do anything with what he had, we do know what his opinion or what his view of the man in charge was, mean and harsh. And I think it's interesting because if you today in here view God as a God who is mean, harsh, punishing, uh, holding grudges, you're going to live a certain way, and it's not going to be a highly productive way when it comes to your faith because you're going to live in fear of God. But if you, if you don't view God that way, if you view God as a man who wants to enable a person who wants to bless you, as a person who wants to give you more, as a person who wants to enable you, as a person who's looking at your life, not as what's wrong with you, but what's right with you and what's possible with you, you will live a different way. You'll pray a different way. You'll serve a different way. You'll treat people a different way. You know, we've all met really mean Christians. Hopefully you're not that guy or girl. But do you know why mean Christians are mean? Because they think God's mean. That's how they view God. Do you know why people enjoy telling people they're going to hell? Because those people think that God enjoys telling people they're going to hell. 
Have you ever met a joyful person who loves people and is incredible and, and just, just exudes the love of Christ? You know why they act that way? Because they believe that God is joyful and incredible and loves people and believes the best in people and talks people up to their potential. Your view of God determines how you will live your life and what you will do with what you have. So the man who has one says, I, I knew you were a harsh man. I knew you were a mean man. And I was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid to take a step. I was afraid to make a move. I was afraid to be bold. I was afraid to take a chance. I was afraid to take a risk. I lived in fear. When it came to parenting my kids, I lived in fear. I was afraid. When it came to, to launching that business instead of working that job that I knew was that dream in my heart, I was afraid. When it came to trying to beat that addiction in my life that I've battled for 20 years, I knew I needed to do something about it, but I was afraid. I was afraid. When it came to taking a chance to, to make a change in my life, I was afraid. It's what he said to the man. So I hid it in the earth. And this is so interesting to me. He said, look, here's your money back. He didn't lose the money. I've always read this story and kind of thought like, well, yeah, one guy turned five into 10 and one guy turned two into four and the other guy lost the money. That's not what happened. The guy who had one gave back to his boss exactly what was given to him. And so you may think if this wasn't church and I wasn't making a point with a sermon and you were just being like unbiased, you may think that the owner or the, la the, the manager would come to the guy with one and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because I've always been under the impression that faithfulness was just not quitting. That being faithful just meant longevity, that being faithful just meant hanging in there. And so if a guy was given one and he gave back one and he didn't lose it, Based on what I've always believed to be the definition of faithfulness, I would think he did okay. Sure, he didn't double the money, but he did bring it back. He didn't lose it. But that's not what the guy says. 26, but the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money at the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest. So he doesn't say to the man, good and faithful, even though he didn't lose the money. He didn't lose the money. He didn't cheat on his wife. He didn't lose his kids. He didn't never work a job. He hung in there. But it's never really dawned on me until a couple months ago, and I really started studying this story, that the word faithful is faithful. Like, in other words, the word faithful is like full of faith. That faithful doesn't mean not quitting. Faithful doesn't mean hanging in there. Are there times when you got to hang in there because you want to be faithful? Absolutely. But a faithful life is not a life of just holding on and not quitting. The, the opposite of faithful, I guess, is not necessarily unfaithfulness. I, I think the opposite of, of faithful is, is like boring or the opposite of faithful is like not trying or mediocrity. Like, yes, I guess technically if I never cheat on my wife, I'm faithful to her. But just because I don't cheat on her doesn't mean I'm faithful to the marriage. Does that make sense to everybody? I want my marriage to be full. So just because I never cheat on her, he was faithful. and just be glad like, well, I mean, I didn't really get anything else out of him, but he never cheated on me. So he was faithful. There was nothing full about it right? You're not being faithful to your job just because you show up. That's not faithful. That's just showing up. 
And so if your concept of faithfulness is not quitting, then the guy who took one and finished with one should be faithful. But he was not full of faith. Evidently, according to God in this story, evidently faithfulness has to do with taking faith uh, full risks, taking a chance, going to work, investing, trying to do something. And so the man says back, he says, you're wicked and you're lazy. And you didn't even do the minimum. You didn't even do the minimum. And I'm, the Bible doesn't say this. I'm, I'm reading into the story a little bit, but it seems to me, tell me what you think. It seems to me when I read this story that the, that the, that the boss would have rather the man with one tried and failed than not tried at all. Is that what you see too? I, I see that, like, that the man would not have been upset if the guy with one would have come back and said, listen, I tried. I tried to start that business. I tried, I tried to raise my kids in church. I tried to be a godly leader. I tried to be a godly husband. I tried to kick that addiction, but it got me. It got the best of me, and I failed. It almost feels like the guy would have been like, hey, you tried. You tried to do something instead of doing nothing and finishing with what you started with, right? And when we read what he says in verse 28, we're about to read it. He don't sound like Matthew McConaughey, Jesus. He sounds a little mean. Like the concept of Jesus that we have is about to get turned upside down. Are you ready? Verse 28, then he ordered, take the money from this servant, the guy who had one and still has one. He says, take it and give it to the one with 10 bags. So before we read verse 29, can we just stop for a second and say, that seems so unfair. Like, does anybody else read that and think, that's unfair? Let the guy have his one. Why would you give one guy 11 and leave another guy with nothing? That seems so unfair. And if your view of Jesus is always fairness, this verse, this story is going to bother you. And we could go to some other ones about the parable of the vineyard workers. And we could go back to the story we read last week where he cuts down fig trees that don't grow, even sometimes when it's not in season. Like there are these stories where we come and meet this Jesus who expects you to do something with what you have in your life. That he is gracious and he is patient and he fully is letting you figure it all out. But we don't get to say, well, God loves me anyway, so I'm just going to do nothing. Not according to these stories. According to these stories, he wants you to take what you have and do something. Do something. Do something. And so he says, here's what we're going to do. And everybody in the room is a little bit bothered by this. He says, we're going to take the guy who's got one because he didn't do anything. We're going to take it from him. And we're going to give it to the guy with 10 because I am a God who rewards faithfulness, right? Look at what he says in 29. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. How do you feel about that statement? Like, I'm not asking you literally, but I just want to know, like, how do you feel about that statement? Because this is a principle of the kingdom of God. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. And they will have an abundance. 
but from those who do nothing. Everybody say, who do nothing. Who do nothing. Even what little they have will be taken away. And we're like, come on, Jesus. Just let him have his one. He says, no, because if you won't work what you've got, I'm definitely not going to give you more. But I'm going to take it a step further, and you're going to lose it. My mom used to always tell me when I was a kid, she said, Jason, if you won't use the gifts God's given you, he's going to take them away from you and give them to somebody else. And I used to think as like an 8, 10, 12-year-old, like, Jesus wouldn't do that. And I've watched it happen over and over and over again with people around me, like, that they, they refused to use the gifts that God had given them. He says, but from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And then verse 30, now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we read that and we're like, I want Matthew McConaughey Jesus back. <laughs> this story seems so unfair, so unfair. But I want to give you three thoughts just really quick about this story because we're talking about closing the gap. We're talking about being meant for more, living for more. I want to give you three thoughts about this story that have honestly been, you can, you can talk to our staff. I've shared this devotion like six different ways from staff meeting and wrote a book for pastors recently and it was in there. And like this has been a story that has been a kind of a, a foundational piece for me in my life. I want to give you three thoughts. Number one is this, I don't have what I wish I had right now, but I have what God wants me to have. That's verse 15. If you want to go back and have some foundational scripture for it, here's, verse, here's the first point. I don't have what I want to have, what I wish I had in my life, but I have what God wants me to have. So as you look at your life and you're comparing yourself to everybody else around you right now, and you're thinking, I don't have what I, I wish I had. Based on this story, you have what God believes you are able to handle. Isn't that what it said? He said he gave some five, he gave some two, he gave some one based on their ability to handle it. That's what it said. And so comparison starts playing this funny game on us. And like, well, Jason, yeah, I don't have the marriage I want to have, but it's easy for you to say, because if I had your wife, then yeah, it would be easier for me to be a spiritual leader in my home. If I had your husband, if I had your kids, you know, yeah, I would like pray with my kids if I had your kids, you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I would work harder at my job if I had your job. I would be better with my money if I had as much money as you had. I would give if I had more. I would be nicer if everybody in my life wasn't awful. If I had what somebody else had, I would do more with it. But until you come to terms with the idea that you have in this season for now, it's not forever, it's just for now. Right now, you have what God wants you to have. And he wants to see what you'll do with it. He wants to see what you'll do with it. So you're like, yeah, I'm making like, my job pays me like $12,000 a year. Okay. It's not forever. It's just for now. What do you do with the 12000 yeah, well, my kids are demons. Okay. How, what are you doing with those kids? Well, my husband's not saved. Okay. It's not forever, it's just now. How are you treating, loving, modeling Christ to him right now? Right? You may not have what you want to have right now, but you have what God wants you to have. 
And, and maybe you say, like, Jason, if you knew what little I had, like, that doesn't sound like God should just give me more. That's not how he works. Sometimes he does. Sometimes there's unexplainable blessing for no good reason. And we can find lots of examples about that. So keep praying for that. And I'll keep praying with you. But if you want to just find some kingdom of God foundational principles, what you have right now, right now God wants you to have. You're living in the neighborhood he wants you to live in right now. You've got the job he wants you to have right now. You've got the amount of money in your bank account he wants you to have right now. Okay, that's point number one. Second thought is this, how I handle what I have now. Let's God know how much I can handle. How I handle what I have right now, let's God know how much I can handle. So how you handle the authority that's over you in your life right now, lets God know how much authority he can give you. So you're like, yeah, well, my boss is a jerk and he's dishonest and he's a terrible human being. Okay. Regardless of the fact that the Bible says all authority comes from God, got that. How you treat and handle the authority that's in your life is an indicator of how much authority you can be trusted with. How you handle the money you have right now. How you handle the husband or the wife that you have right now, which is weird because you're not going to get another one. I'm just saying in general, like, (laughs) go with the thesis here. Okay, all right. Some of you are like, so if I'm nice to this one, I'll get another one? Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But you know what I'm saying? If you'll treat the one-bag husband like he's a five-bag husband, he'll turn into an 11-bag husband. Like, what I'm saying is, is that if you'll work what you have and handle well what you have now, You are letting God know, and he already knows, but you're letting God know how much you can handle. You're like, Jason, I know you say that all the time. I know, but I promise if I had more, I would do better. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. If you don't keep this car clean, I don't care how nice a car you buy. You're not going to keep it clean, and I'm just talking about myself here. (laughs) You just won't. Like, man, if I drove a nicer car, you know, we wouldn't go through the drive-thru. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. So, so that's thought number two, how I handle number three for me. Now, let's God know how much I can handle. And then thought number three for me is just do something. Just do something. A guy I love, a pastor I love, his name's Andy Stanley. He has a quote saying, any plan will work if you work it. Like it could be the wrong plan, but if you work it, it'll, it, it, like, it'll work. Right? Like, you ain't got to pick the right diet. Just pick a diet and stick with it, right? It doesn't really matter what marriage book you pick. Just read it. It doesn't really matter how you pray. Just pray. Like, any plan will work if you work it. And so I want to just be a little bit aggressive and not just mean for just a second and trust my heart. Some of you are waiting on God to drop something in your lap. And, And you're like, well, one day when I will. No, you won't. You won't. You know how I know? Because you ain't done nothing yet. And I'm not better than you. I'm just trying to be better than myself. And I want to live for all that God has for me. And so if I won't steward 300 people well at Hope City Church, why would God give us 3,000? If, if I won't love my wife how she is now, why would God change her when I'm not willing to change me? If I won't manage my money now, why would God give me more? He could, but I can't handle it because I'm proving right now I can't handle it. 
can't handle it. I said, you've got to just do something. Like, do something. Like, I know you don't want that job. You'd rather have that job, but just work that job. Like, I know it doesn't pay you what you want to make now, but, like, get that one. Right? Just do something. Because based on what I read in this story, the, 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 the manager, the owner, the guy in charge, he was not upset that the guy with one failed. He was upset he didn't try. So let's stop making excuses. What? Well, yeah, but Jason, like you had a good mom and dad. I did have a great mom and dad. What? That's not the point. Like, stop making excuses. God only expects you to do well with what you have. So he's not judging you against me. My parents are not in the equation for you. Well, yeah, you got a great marriage, or yeah, you got great kids, or whatever. I mean, first of all, you don't know what I fight about, but yeah, fine, okay, I'll go with you on that. But that has nothing to do with you. That's not your story. If you'll, if you'll work it, turn your one into two. You can turn your two into four. You can turn your five into 10. You can turn your 10 into 20. Because God rewards faithfulness. So we can keep praying for a Hail Mary. You know, we can keep praying for like a, wow, I won the lottery, whatever. Like we can keep praying for that. God does things like that enough that it's like, wow. But the kingdom of the principle of God is do well what you have now and God will reward it. Man, you can come on up. You can come on up. I just want to challenge you, like just as your pastor just kind of speaking into your life. I just want to challenge all of us in the room. Let's don't take on this victim mentality. It's so hard to do because everybody around you will encourage your pity party. Everybody around you will tell you why you're right and your excuse is valid. And that guy is a jerk and that boss is wrong. And, you know, that rich guy is the problem. And we can start resenting people with 10, you know, thinking that people with 10 are bad. God wants you to have 10 whether it's dollars or joy or love or authority, like God wants to bless your life. But as long as we take this victim mentality of like, well, I never really had a chance to get ahead. I never really had the opportunity that everybody else had. We're never able to do what God wants us to do. How I handle what I have now, let God know how much I can say it one more time. How you handle what you have now, let God know how much you can handle. So look at your life right now. Where do you need to better manage what you currently have? And God will bless it. Why don't you stand up with me? Let's pray together.